Good morning and welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today I have a really interesting show. I know I always say that, but this one really is interesting. Um, we have with us today Rabbi Matthew Honak, who is a teacher of Jewish mysticism, a spiritual counselor, and the co-founder of the Makora Institute, an online spiritual center for embodied practice. Ordained with honors as a rabbi at the Neo-Hasidic Rabbinical School of Hebrew College, he also holds the master's degree in con contemplative religion from Naropa University. Matthew lives in Victoria, British Columbia, and is certified as a focusing professional to guide others to deeper self-understanding, self-knowledge, and healing. He's the author of the new book, Embodied Kabbalah, and um, his website is Matthew Ponek but we'll cover this again.com. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Randy. So um, I called it Kabbalah because most people understand that word. You coming from a Hebrew perspective, call it Kabbalah. Kabbalah. So I just want my listeners to understand that we may say either in the course of this discussion, but uh, it's the exact same thing. Indeed, okay. and some people even call it the Kabbalah. Sort of, the, they, they use the definite article at the beginning, and that's the, the same Kabbalah. body of teachings they're referring to. Okay, and the book is called Embodied Kabbalah. So, what does that mean? What is what, what does that mean to you? So, embodiment is a term that right could be used differently by different people, and what it means to me when I title of the book, Embodied Kabbalah, is that it really has to do with a grounded approach to spirituality that includes relating to our bodies. It, back in the day, spirituality used to be the opposite of corporeality. Those two words were considered the opposite of each other. Okay. Corporeality had to do with relating to the body and relating to physicality. And that's in this sort of English tr Christian tradition. And so when people think of spirituality in our culture, often what they think about on some level is moving beyond and transcending. And embodiment in this sense really has to do with integration, with insights, not just for their own sake or experiences for their own sake, but things that are then being translated into deeper parts of who we are and also lived out in the world. Essentially, an embodied mystic is someone who can have access to profound moments or realizations, but also be someone who can show up on time to an appointment yeah. and pay their taxes and be a loving member of their family and community. It's it's actually about the balance between those different parts of who we are. Okay. I understand that. So in other words, the embodied person, spiritual spiritual follower, or believer is someone who doesn't just go off into the ethers. They they have this balance between, you know, between the spiritual self and the physical self, which is really important. Um, Absolutely, because we're living a physical reality, so we can't take off as much as some of us would like to into the other <laughs> realm. <laughs> we do right. have this spiritual life. I mean, this physical life, and we have things we have to do here. So I think that's uh, that's really important. So we're not talking um, from a Jewish perspective as much as we are talking from a spiritual perspective when we discuss this today. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily make a dichotomy between a Jewish perspective and a spiritual perspective necessarily, okay. because in it's possible to be spiritual and religious, okay. if you know what I'm saying, in any tradition. But I will say this topic is not for only Jewish people at all. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Jewish Mysticism for All People. Okay. In the same way that someone would talk about mindfulness and not have to qualify that with, this is mindfulness for everyone. Gotcha. In the same way, Embodied Kabbalah is an offering for people of any background who want to engage with the teachings. Okay. And I just said that because I want people to who are listening and going, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to listen. So I just kind of wanted to, um, to talk about that and uh, make sure that they understand that this is for everybody. Now, Kabbalah used to be something that was reserved for scholars who were deeply studying uh, Judaism and the Torah and um, no one else was really had access to this. Why was that? For a long period of time, there were several reasons why people were forming those kinds of tighter circles. Partly, in order to be able to access the teachings simply in their original form in the books, for example, you would require years and years of language acquisition. And it's one thing to be able to translate a teaching into your native tongue, and it's another thing to be able to understand it. It's a lot of them are written in code form. So even if you translated it into English, without commentary or without context, it's very hard to understand it. So just in terms of that, it takes a long time to access it. And also there is the experiential component because great, now I finally understood what the metaphor means, but I have no idea what that means experientially. So for a person to really access it in that sense, it was about a combination of a lot of book learning and a lot of personal striving and experiencing so those two factors on their own actually take a fair amount of time for people to develop the other factor there that was in the intentional limiting perhaps why some of this stuff was written in codes in the first place first of all it's quite radical and within a traditional jewish framework kabbalah was talking about ways of understanding and experiencing reality that were not really classically thought about, approved of necessarily. It was it was out there. And so hiding it a little bit was helpful. And lastly, there was a worry and I think a well-justified worry that if too many people were exposed to this and they weren't ready for it, that it could harm them or that it could give them a certain access to power or influence and they could harm others. Wow. Interesting. Where was this? Who created this or or? When was this created? I mean, who was thinking about this mysticism that decided to put it together and um, create this uh, this particular study? So the word Kabbalah or Kabbalah can be used in two different ways. And in one sense, in the sense that I use it on the cover of the book and in general, in, in, in this particular project is it's any form of Jewish mysticism in our history. And actually, you can go back all the way to the prophets of the Bible, and you could call them Jewish mystics. They were doing practices to tap into uh, 
subtle reality, something that was beyond most people's perceptions. And then they would hear God's voice or something like that, or have a vision. And then that would inspire them towards action. I mean, that's a fairly archetypal, fairly fundamental uh, method or approach to mysticism in the Jewish religion. And that goes back all the way to the Bible, to Moses, to Abraham, and to Ezekiel, and to Isaiah. And there are many different iterations of different forms of mysticism throughout the era, but Kabbalah in a more, I guess, academic sense or in a more formal sense is a particular movement which begins in the Middle Ages. First, it's first written down in Provence in France, and then it's really articulated much more fully in Spain, in uh, Castile in particular. And so then it, you know, it goes through different iterations. Truthfully, we don't know where that medieval form of Kabbalah comes from. There are traces that may go back to the Middle East as well. But what we do know is that it was cultivated and taught and practiced in groups of people who were doing a combination of meditation and learning, and that it had a tremendous influence once it was first put out there in in a wider published form. It seems so odd that it really uh, has its roots in um, in the middle in the um, where where did you say it was formed? I'm sorry. Oh, in in France and Spain. No, but you know, in the Middle Ages. That's what I was. Oh, saying. in the Middle Ages. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that was such a time of just anger and fighting, and you know, everybody was just really kind of um, crude and. Um, argumentative, dark ages. that whole kind of thing. So it's it's interesting that that sprung out of that, which is, um, it's kind of, you know, if we, if we think of the parallel of where we are now, the way our planet is functioning, and how much there is um, that's wrong or bothering us. But then again, there's a whole movement of people who are spiritual, who are rising up from that. So it's it's very it's a very interesting dichotomy. And and in time in times of transition, there is often a lot of this kind of experimentation or seeking. And that there's a, several eras of, I can at least say, Jewish innovation where they were there was times of change and there were different types of communities forming, and some of them made it and some of them didn't. But the ex- experimental mentality during times like this, I would include in the spiritual and the religious world is very helpful for coming generations because some things that already exist aren't going to work anymore and new forms that are being thought of or dreamed of might be exactly what the future needs. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, um, that is really interesting. So let's talk about why do people leave religion? Why do people leave religion? Well, I think it's actually quite related to what uh, we were just talking about, that in essence, religions are storehouses of wisdom, treasuries there, and there's a mix of other things in there too, like power dynamics and willfulness, not necessarily just towards transformation, but towards group cohesion. And sometimes that can be more or less palatable to people. The issue with something that's a storehouse 
is that if it's not growing and evolving, it can feel rigid and stuck. And if people have, like we do today, in certainly in, in North America, freedom of religion, people can actually choose what they want. There's nothing in the in the legal system telling us we have to observe one thing or another. There are community pressures, cultural pressures, influences, things that people genuinely love about who they are and where they come from. And there's also exposure to all of these different ways of being. So religions, if they're stuck and there's other options available to people and they can pursue them, they're often going to. And so in times of transition, when there's other options out there and when the old systems aren't working, religions ought to be engaging with the newness in the world. And so most of the time people in power don't love to change that. And so a lot of the major movements, including Kabbalah, happen when there's people who have access to the knowledge of the tradition, let's say, but they're also kind of off the beaten track. This was not a mainstream thing when it started, but because they had a combination of authenticity and con accessing the old as well as the new, you can they created something fresh that that spoke to people. And I often it's the people who are leaving that are actually doing the work of continuing religion in the future because they're going to be engaging with things that the the institutions aren't. And that's actually very healthy and valuable in the long term. Right. For me, um, from my perspective, how I how I see this is um, I don't like my spiritual beliefs defined for me or even I want to define them on my own. I want to seek them on my own. I want to find them on my own. But I imagine that that can be done through the Kabbalah. Um, so you don't have to necessarily just adhere to one particular religion. For me, that never made any sense. Although I was brought up in a very religious home, I rejected it. Um, it was just too rigid for me. But I think that's just the home I grew up in. <laughs> so well, um, <laughs> it might not be just the home you grew up in, too, right? You know, there's that's unfortunate. That can be a part of a lot of people's religious upbringing, and. I was born in a, raised in a fairly open-minded Jewish background where it wasn't, we weren't particularly practicing, but I, it was sort of more cultural for me in, initially. And, and I didn't feel very hard done by, by Judaism, I guess in certain ways I did. There were some things that were emphasized so much, I got really sick of them, but the, the idea that we can explore and expand our horizons and not be limited to any one system is something I deeply believe in. The reason I became a rabbi is because I felt called to it, mm -hmm. but I didn't do it because I thought it was right or proper or my true only way. I, I was at a Buddhist university exploring world religions and I got this calling and I, I pursued that because it, and it was very confusing at first, but I found the way that I fit here. But my my general orientation towards belief is that I recommend that people believe what they've experienced and not necessarily, it's good to learn from the past, but we shouldn't be limited to it as certainly as spiritual seekers. Right, right. Because yeah, that, that's someone else's version of it. And, and we should, yeah, we should trust what we've encountered. Exactly. And so there are people that practice archaic Judaism and are doing the rituals of archaic Judaism even though they have no uh, 
relationship to modern living. And that is something that I, I just cannot wrap my head around it. Do you have a feeling about that? You know, I have family, uh, I have ultra-Orthodox family in Israel. So for, for listeners who might not know what that means, it means people who have a very deeply ritually based existence that basically every moment of every day uh, punctuated by special days in the week and holidays it's it's a it's filled at with most moments in with some kind of ritual orientation or practice okay. and that is a lifestyle that I have sort of been a tourist in when I've gotten to visit them and spend time there and there are parts of that life that are strikingly beautiful which because it's this deep sense of community and family and there's a time for spiritual connection in the way that they're doing it in every day certainly every week and it, it can be a, a very enriching lifestyle if people really fit in there and if maybe i would say they haven't learned so much about all the other perspectives in the world but in the same way that some people just feel like they need to seek and explore i think there's some people who really feel like they need to they need to go home or they need to stay at home. And I I couldn't actually give you every single reason why that still exists, but I know that if it exists, it's for a reason. Mm -hmm. If you know what I'm saying, that I don't think it's a coincidence that these forms are still around. One, one thought I do have is that the modern world can be pretty frightening for people. It can feel pretty lonely. Mm -hmm. It can feel dangerous or unmoored. And that the path of the explorer, which we've been discussing, mm -hmm. is not for everyone. And there's a way that there's a place for people who want to do the opposite. Uh, and that's that's what might be one of the reasons why those places not only exist, but sometimes people join communities like that because they're looking for something solid to hold on to. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's safer to have things defined for you, everything defined for you, pretty much. I have relatives in Israel, too, and, who are very, very ultra-religious, and um, I sometimes, <laughs> we've had um, holiday meals with them, and they're, they're doing things I've never seen. My grandfather was an Orthodox cantor, and so I grew up around Orthodox religion, and I, they're doing things I have never, ever, rituals I haven't seen before, and I'm like, why are they doing that? So um, it's it's just very different. And it's changed too. The, the, there's traditionally, let's say, ultra-Orthodox religious camps. Often they're, they're not staying the same as they always were, so to speak. There's actually, we've all been affected by modernity. And some people have gotten more strict than is normal. And mm -hmm. some people have gotten more open-minded than in the past. Right. Or, or more experimental. They're, but we're all being affected by this freedom we've been granted. Yeah, that's true. So tell us about the embodied Kabbalah or Kabbalah. Um, can you give us some examples? I know you have um, 40, what is it, 41? 42, 42 texts. Okay, 42 texts. And what's the difference in the text? I know we can't, don't have time for 42, but give us an idea of how they're arranged in the book. Yeah, so in the book, they're arranged from different teachers, essentially. And each page has the translation of the teaching itself in the middle of the page. But 
just like I was mentioning a few minutes ago, it's not enough usually to just have a translation of it because it's filled with metaphors and symbols and references. And so surrounding each text is commentary and explanations. There are practices associated with many of the teachings. There's a little bit about who, who wrote it and why. And there's also comparative sections where I'll take a look at other traditions or various elements of psychology that relate to these particular viewpoints. And the teachings are essentially, the, the central theme that runs through them has to do with embodiment and integration. But another way of understanding them as a whole is that they're all about lessons from the Jewish mystical tradition that I think the world could benefit from right now. So there's a section on Shabbat, which is the, the day of rest or the Sabbath, but it's it's presented not as this is something people should do from Friday night to Saturday night. It's more about the essence of what it means to experience refreshment and an oasis in time that we ought to work in this world, both on ourselves and in our communities and in, in, in our families. There's things to do. But the idea of Shabbat consciousness, which again could be cultivated for 30 minutes in the evening, right? right? Or right. or for 15 minutes on a on a lunch break or something, mm -hmm. that it's getting ourselves to a place where we can see the world as something that is good or something that is whole, and we can see ourselves as whole. It's inherently refreshing to do things like delighting our senses, spending times with people we love. Not everyone in our culture loves to sing, but I am of the opinion that if we find songs that we really enjoy and sing them together, that is such a joyful, delightful way to experience a moment. And it is a balance between the the work that we have to do as well, the work week consciousness versus the Shabbat consciousness. And I, so the teaching in particular that I bring is, is a Hasidic teacher from the 1700s who says, not only are we supposed to, in that mindset, view the world like it's complete, we're supposed to view ourselves like we're complete too. And I thought it was just such a beautiful perspective. And you don't hear that very often, but I've there's you'll find that in the world of in seeking, in the world of psychology, we should work on ourselves. Yeah, we, we've got work to do. I, I'm not whole yet. I haven't reached my peak emotional intelligence yet. I haven't reached my you know best abilities to communicate or to understand myself. And you'll also hear messages like we should accept ourselves for who we are. And so this is a framework to say there's actually, these are different practices. These are different orientations and both are extremely valuable because if all we're doing is accepting ourselves and celebrating who we are, we might be missing some of that work that actually needs to be done or ought to be done for our growth and, and for the benefit of those around us. But if all we're doing is striving and growing all the time, it can get exhausting. It can, it can, we can experience burnout. And so it's actually that refinement of those perspectives. So that that's one teaching I, I particularly love and love talking about these days. And so why did you choose 42? Well, this project started as a paper that I needed to write, my final paper in rabbinical school. I was being mentored by a fantastic translator of mystical texts and a theologian by the name of Rabbi Arthur Green. He 
and I were talking about it and he initially said, well, I think you should do 50 texts. And I, I had in mind, I was going to include some biblical passages and some other ones. And he said, no, no, no. I want them to be purely the mystical texts in the last thousand years. And that was a, a fairly high level of, uh, of, of quantity to translate. So I said, how about 36? 36 is a wonderful Kabbalistic <laughs> number. And among other things, it means sort of like it has to do with hidden light and hidden, hidden righteous people. And it's twice 18, double 18 high, right, double high. life. And he said, he said, what about 42? That's another great Kabbalistic <laughs> number. There's this, a teaching about a, a hidden 42 uh, letter name of God. And so we, we sort of, you know, bantered on it a little bit back and forth and decided on that. I will say that since the book has come out, and this is not something that is normal in my life, but the number 42 has been appearing everywhere. And it, to me, it, it's, I don't spend too much time following omens, if you know what I'm saying, but there is something meaningful for me it's that that number. It's a synchronicity. It's not an omen. It's a big it's synchronicity. Yeah. It's a synchronicity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, exactly. Um, yeah, there's no there's no accident that you're seeing that number. It's it is very significant in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may, I'd like to just share one other teaching sure. uh, from the book. I shared one that was more about kind of the uh, this a teaching that I really want the world to know about. And this other teaching I want to share is that, but it's also really more in that integration, that pacing realm, because. As I was saying before, one of the reasons Kabbalah was kept more secret or more esoteric and limited over time is because it, it was thought to be dangerous for people. And in the sense of overwhelm, it is possible, I mean, really in any mystical or spiritual tradition to go too far too fast and to experience some kind of mental injury. So and people describe that going on, you know, meditation retreats uh, of Vipassana, for example, or you can you can find that in a lot of settings. And it's one of the strategies that is most helpful with that simply is learning how to slow down and pacing ourselves. And so the Kabbalists don't describe it as directly as I just said that what they would do is they would interpret a passage from the Bible and they would explain it in that way. So they say. Moses has an encounter with the burning bush in the book of Exodus. He's, you know, he's wandering along and he sees this fire and he approaches it. And then pretty soon he's talking to God. But a particular Kabbalist named Bachia Ibn Bakuda, or Bachia Ben Asher, sorry, Rabbeinu, our, our teacher Bachia, he's called. He says, well, Moses... Actually, when he first saw the burning bush, he didn't think it was God at all. He thought it was some strange fire and he went to check it out. It says if he had thought that was God in the bush, he would have run away. It would have been over. <laughs> it would have been scary. And so in a sense, God showed him something that would bring him near with interest. It was, it was as though God was flirting with Moses and he didn't want to come on too strong. And essentially what happens next is then Moses has an encounter with an angel. And in that moment, this teaching says that Moses like levels up and then his consciousness is strengthened, that his actual capacity to contain more is strengthened. It's like working out. If we go into the gym and pick up the heaviest weights on our first day ever working out, we will probably injure ourselves <laughs> and we might give up and that might be the end of it. Right. But we actually have to take a little bit of time and, and use weight that's appropriate for us. And then we need to put it down for a while and we need to let our muscles heal. And when we actually do the exercise, there's like micro tears 
that are happening in our muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. And when we let them heal, that's actually when we're growing stronger. And essentially that is what this teaching is describing that after he levels up with the angel, he takes a bit of time to integrate. And only then is he encountering God. And at that point, and by the way, when I'm saying God, I, this is a sort of a loaded word for, for some people. So it could be, you could say deep reality. You could say existence. You could say the universe. He's experiencing something more subtle and more profound. And then again, his consciousness is strengthened. And though it, with Moses, it's happening, you know, in a period of a few minutes, the, the teaching ends with saying, our bodies and our souls, or you could say our bodies and our minds follow the same rules. If someone lives in a cave, and they go out and, and into the bright light of day, their eyes are going to darken, it says. They might go blind or they, they'll suffer. And that's how our personal spiritual evolution works as well. We actually need to take it step by step and, and use integration if we're really going to be able to grow and to be able to access the light in its more refined forms. And I think that's with everything. I mean, I think with healing, it's the same thing. You know, it's when we try to take too big of a bite, we end up not eating at all because it's too overwhelming. So it's, that's a good philosophy. Um, yeah. And it definitely applies to that deeper inner work as well. And there's, there's several teachings in the book about the, the philosophy of how to, how to break down with ease and grace, for example, and, and the possibilities of, of overcoming difficulties and actually growing through the process as opposed to just, you know, living maybe as we were before, but there's the, the hope in difficulty and, and its ability to transform and refine us. Um, I landed somehow on this page um, as I was looking through this, page 14, where it says, it's a great mitzvah to be joyful at every moment, to conquer sadness and bitter darkness and keep it away with all your might. Okay, so mitzvah is a, it's a you can describe that. Yeah, it often is trans translated probably literally in the Bible as a commandment. Okay. So these are commandments that God gives the people of Israel. And they include everything from basically treating people well, <laughs> loving your neighbor, those kinds of things, to very specific rituals. They're all in that world of commandment. But in the Hasidic world where this teaching comes from, it's sort of a more recent mystical movement in Jewish history. A mitzvah is often seen as a connection. It's not, it's, there's a, a way of, of sort of interpreting it and finding it's relating it to a different word called savta in Aramaic, which means connection or attachment. So one of the ways I like to think about it, it's an opportunity to connect more deeply. And so the idea there, what you're saying is that a mitzvah isn't necessarily just saying a particular prayer at a particular time of day or you know, using a particular ritual item or even kindness. In this case, it's a mitzvah to be happy. It's a pretty radical statement coming from the late 1700s. <laughs> and, and, and he, and he nuances it too. If, if you keep going, because what he's saying there is it's a great mitzvah to be happy. We should really try to be happy. But then he says, you know, it's actually, sometimes we're going to be brokenhearted and that's okay too. He says, actually, if we're going to be brokenhearted, we should really be brokenhearted. So we should take time every day and just He's describing a practice of essentially using the divine as a therapist, that one hour a day, he says, go out into the fields or be alone in nature and just pour your heart out. So the rest of the day, you can be happy. 
good advice. It's kind yeah, of like, and on some uh, level yeah. simplistic, but there's a he I see this particular <clears throat> teacher, Rebbe Nachman, is really he was living well before modern psychology, but some of the things he articulates are like proto psychology. And he's he's really got some of those concepts in there. Yeah, it's a it's a similar concept to um, worrying, you know. So I tell people, all right, you know, you can worry, but you're only going to worry between two, you know, few hours that you choose. <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the day, the rest of the day, you don't have to. That's your worry time. You That's know? exactly what Rabbi Nachman was saying. Mm -hmm. and That's exactly it. Right. Yeah. Right. And then it's you can be happy the rest of the day, and you know you have this time to worry if you want to. <laughs> exactly exactly and that's that's a, i think that's a pretty healthy attitude yeah it's it, it it's helpful to people who are chronic worriers who feel like they lose control if they stop worrying or that if they stop worrying something bad's going to happen and um yeah it's it, well yeah in in he has another sort of level of the practice too i'd actually be really curious to hear your thoughts on it randy as a psychologist because what he says is that it's ideal to go at night alone into a nature area and then do the practice and one of the understandings of that is that it's actually supposed to bring up the fear so that it can be contended with and i i, I could this is not something i usually feel compelled to do in that way <laughs> But I'm curious, I, I think there is a time and a place for really facing our fears or, or to go into that mode. Vis-a-vis -vis what you were describing a minute ago with the kind of the time for worrying, is that something you could see yourself recommending to people? So uh, first of all, I just want to clear up, I'm not a psychologist. Um, I don't have a degree, but I do work in the mental health field and I, I do mental health coaching specifically for emotional abuse. Um, but there is something called exposure therapy, which is what you're talking about. And exposure therapy means facing your fears, you know, exposing yourself to the, the thing that you're most afraid of. And that works for certain situations. The work that I do with narcissistic abuse, it doesn't work. It's actually the opposite of what people need to do, because every time they are exposed, to the thing that upsets them the most, they're re-triggered and it creates uh, anxiety and it starts the, the whole anxiety thing to up, uh, you know, up again, starts it up again. So, um, but for people who are not dealing with that issue, exposure therapy, I think is used quite often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so exposure therapy to our fear of the wilderness in the dark, perhaps, which is probably a fairly pervasive fear for a lot of mm -hmm. people. I would say so. <laughs> I, I yeah. don't want to be there. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and there's one other uh, teaching that uh, you're reminding me of uh, as we're talking, and it relates to the sense of the universality of it all and, and what it means to be, let's say, engaging with Kabbalah, but not necessarily with a formal system of religious practice. The very first teaching in the book the full first page is a really for its time, extremely radical take on the figure Abraham. So Abraham in the Bible lives before Moses, hundreds of years before Moses, and he never received the Torah. Like Moses was the one who got all the commandments and got all the laws. And yet Abraham is this extremely holy guy and he's close to the divine and he's, he's 
yeah, flawed in different ways we could look at, but he's seen, he's a revered figure who never had this code of law. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, people ask like in our history, why does Abraham, how is he able to do this without the Torah? And some people say, well, he really did have the Torah. He figured it out on his own and there's different opinions, but this Hasidic teaching, again, from the 1700s is saying, you know, when you're connected to spirit and you have that kind of, you could say union, or you could say connection with the divine at every moment, you actually don't need these things. That the idea of ritual practices, they're a means to an end. And they're meant to connect you with deep reality, to connect you with truth. And if you're there, then you actually don't need those practices. It's that I can relate to that really well. I can. Um, and it yeah. may be that, you know, because I'm very connected and, and maybe that's why I don't need the rituals because I just have access, you know? Yeah, exactly. Know, and I can, I can download information if I need it. And, you know, so I'm, I, you know, I think we all can do this mm -hmm. and we're all guided to do this. It's just a matter of saying, of recognizing that you can and beginning to experiment with it. For sure. And, and so a teaching like that, mm -hmm from this very traditional mindset that it was coming from, this very traditional world, it's argued that teachings like that, it's because the teachers themselves thought that. Mm -hmm. And they were using Abraham as a, a talking point to explain something that they, at that era, could not actually live out. Mm -hmm. That would have been very heretical for that teacher, the Meor Shemesh, to actually be doing that, like we're talking about. But today we can, and we can actually look back. One of the, there are, it's, you can think about it as as ancestral healing in a sense that there's actually connecting with our more radical ancestors for me or the ones who are writing in sort of more veiled ways. It's often, it's very, it revives my sense of connection there because they're saying a lot of things that I would say, but it took, it, sometimes it takes a great deal of study to actually find all of that. So it's, I found it in general in rabbinical school, very healing to connect with the teachings that showed me that the things that I thought were totally true about the religion actually aren't. And there is this vast plethora of different voices that are out there. And I, I think any person can benefit from connecting with their ancestry. The question is, where do we find those inroads? That, But having a relationship with our own lineage in any kind of way, I, I think, yeah, it's healthy. It's healthy for human beings. What you're talking when you were talking about Abraham not being able to or or these other prophets who really didn't want to come out, um, was this this was before Jesus? So I don't think we can say much about the like earlier biblical characters with knowledge. I was referring in that case to a later teacher still in the in Eastern Europe in in the old world, uh, in the in the you know before the modern era, who's who is looking at the character of Abraham and rereading him as this sort of universal mystic who doesn't need any of the practices. Because in that era, they were having the teachers in that and really pe people in the communities of that particular way of being Jewish, they were experiencing God being everywhere and at all times. And so that wasn't always the view. But if God is everywhere and at all times, then why do we need this particular day of the week? Or why do we need this particular book? Or why do we need this particular practice? It's actually quite similar to how a lot of seekers mm -hmm. view it today. Yeah. That it's this, you know, the, the divine or spirit, we can have access to it in every moment. And so 
from that perspective, religious storehouses can be places we can go to inspire us. They can, there's a tremendous amount there. And, but we don't need to be beholden to them just because someone in the past says it. And so that's, I, but finding resonance in those, in those storehouses can be a really empowering thing. Right. And I mentioned Jesus because he was considered radical at the time. And, mm -hmm. um, but his teachings were, <clears throat> were not radical. They just weren't according to Jewish law. And I think they found they were very um, afraid of that. They didn't want those things to change. What are your feelings? There was a lot of, it seems like he had flexibility. Again, it's sometimes, I, so I, I study a lot of sort of biblical history. And I know certainly in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, if you will, that there's a lot that's written in there that was probably rewritten or changed after it initially <laughs> occurred. I don't, I don't trust these as pure historical documents. And in the same way, <clears throat> I've studied some biblical criticism of the Greek Testament, if you will, the New Testament. And I don't believe, forgetting the miracle stories, that's its own kind of world, but I don't believe everything that was attributed to Jesus, Jesus necessarily said okay. personally. But if we're looking at the historical Jesus, to me, he seemed like someone that was deeply invested in human well-being, who was deeply committed to societal and economic justice, and who was simultaneously tapping into something very profound spiritually. Yep. He was this wonderful archetype of the spiritual activist, mm -hmm. or you know, the and it was in a really big and profound way. Yeah, he was getting he was getting pushback from the Pharisees for healing people on the Sabbath when he wasn't supposed to be doing that and things like that. And he was also getting pushback from the Roman authorities and the <laughs> members of the Jewish community that were siding with them at that time because he was basically starting a movement. And so there's a lot of what he was doing that was very radical and a lot of what he was doing that I think really connects with deeper Jewish spiritual teachings and values, mm -hmm. even if that's not how he is remembered often in, in more traditional Jewish sources. Right. I mean, he was Jewish. And so, you know, he was a Jewish man that just had some radical ideas and had spiritual connection that maybe other people weren't finding or they were finding it on, you know, he was finding it with a direct connection and he wasn't necessarily going through the, uh, you know, the normal kind of um, route to get these exactly. Things. Yeah. And, and we find that when we look back at different points in Jewish history, again, I, I speak about Jewish history, but when I, it's because I know it the best, but I believe this is true in so many other traditions that a lot of the newness and the innovations, it's actually common for there to be other spiritual influences happening as well. So in the early years of Kabbalah, as much as it was the Middle Ages and it was a troubling time overall, there were periods where there was actually a fair amount of peace in certain elements, certain places like in Spain. Okay. There was a sort of a golden age of spiritual sharing. It didn't last that long and it was punctuated by some unpleasant times, but there were people ex exchanging spiritual teachings from across traditions. And that is one of the things that helped inspire medieval Kabbalah. I mean, Sufism makes its way in pretty early. There's Catholic influences in there. And there are, yeah, there are periods of time, including again, in the 1700s at Hasidism, the founder spent a number of years in the mountains and he was probably interacting with 
shamanic folks up there and maybe even Eastern Orthodox Christian mystics, but he came out of those mountains with brand new perspectives mm -hmm. and that inspired a whole new change. Now, today I can tell you that I went to a Buddhist university and I don't have to hide that. Back in those days, people tended to kind of just reinterpret their texts in a way that was a little bit more Sufi or a little bit more shamanic. But this is actually a part of human cultural interaction that's that's always existed in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So with your um, study of, of Buddhism, how do you relate that to what we're talking about today, to the Kabbalah? Are there are there relationships between that? Well, Buddhism shows up a fair amount in the book, in the comparative section. So that teaching I was just describing about how if someone has this spiritual connection, they don't necessarily need the practices anymore. One of the comparative notes there is the teaching where the Buddha is sort of asking his students in this, I guess, Socratic kind of clever way do you, if you have a raft and then you cross a body of water, what do you do with the raft? <laughs> and he, you know, <laughs> and the answer is you don't need the raft anymore. You can leave it behind. That <laughs> the practices are a means to an end. And that's a very, I love that Buddhist teaching. I think it's, I think it's really profound. And I, I, it, I love that there's a resonance with there, with that. And so I mean, there's there's other examples, the the emphasis on equanimity, which is not usually the the front and center in in Jewish spiritual teachings, but it's around. There are there are teachings where it says that if you can kind of connect, if you can devote yourself to the divine in prayer, for example. So I'm not praying for myself anymore. I'm praying for the benefit of the world or for the benefit of, of the wholeness of, of the divine and its manifestation on earth. Basically, that teaching says you can come to a place where you're not really concerned with yourself in such a deep way and you can build towards a sense of the word equanimity or equality of experience. That's a very it's a high ideal in Buddhist meditation to experience the ups and the downs in a more even way. And you can find that in several places within within Kabbalistic tradition. When I, I know I struggled for many years with the word prayer because I was so indoctrinated into Jewish prayer. I went six years to Hebrew school three times a week. I mean, boom, boom. You know? <laughs> and that to me was prayer. And I and and if I were to pray. Without it, I didn't even know what that meant. And I don't know that I still do. So how do we pray? Yeah, what is prayer? Yeah, so, and and yeah, just to be fair, what, what you're describing doesn't work for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Of the, let's read Hebrew prayers that someone else wrote that generally is describing God as a king. A male king who might be working amazing miracles, and we can ask for things in there, but it's not. But he was also, and he was also quite angry at times. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Just like we, when we, we, the reason we praise God so much in the prayers is the same reason the ancients praised kings so much before they asked them for something. This okay. is a very powerful person who might have a temper, and, and this that is no the idea of the angry king or the angry father is not foreign at all to to Jewish uh, teachings from the past, certainly. 
And so I just want to say, I, there's a lot, I, I completely resonate with you on a personal level of not uh, enjoying that style of praying. The the kind when when I pray, and I I have a variety of practices that I use, but when I pray, it's really in that sense of that Rebbe Nachman sense I was describing before of pouring out my heart. And it's really what is on my mind right now. It's it's honestly it's God as therapist that there are times maybe I'll be uh, walking somewhere or maybe I'll be alone in my room. It's kind of like journaling, but I find it very useful just to say you know, to have that relationship and say what's on my mind and the difference between communicating to a person most of the time or to God, again, especially if we're alone in nature is you can really let God have it. It's not, (laughs) I'm feeling really angry right now, God. It's actually yelling at God. And that is a tradition and it might not be as well known, but there is an old practice of yelling at God (laughs) and really getting it out. And and different, you know what I mean? Different practices for different people and different moments. But that is a way that I have found really helpful. And not necessarily just the yelling, but when I'm feeling in that way, it's usually when I'm particularly feeling stressed or overwhelmed or afraid of something going on in a bigger way. That's when I'll turn to that more often. And it's it's just about getting out. And as I articulate it, I start to have insights mm-hmm. and, and answers start to come simply from, from pouring out my heart. Right, right. Because... Yelling at the spiritual world doesn't manifest what you want. <laughs> it's not the way to get what you want, but I can imagine that it's a way to get it out, you know. Yeah, it's not, it's yeah, it's not a spell or a command or a it's actually just a sip like a an emptying of self. That that's that orientation. It's yeah, it's not uh most people and deities don't <laughs> respond terribly like well. But no. but in yes, in the sense of just expressing ourselves. It can be it can be cathartic. And in the space that's left after a cathartic moment, there can be room for for a novel insight or wisdom to come through. Interesting. Well, I think that's an important part of um, that, you know, of this that you're talking about, because, um, you know, we can't be perfect all the time. You know, I was, um, you know, every time um, I end up in a synagogue for a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or something like that. And I'm looking, going through the book and I'm like, God, God was so retaliatory, you know? And, and I'm like, <laughs> that's not true. That is not true. You know, and it, it just really bothers me to read that. Well, I, I completely agree with you. And it's not, it's I, both theoretically and experientially. I, I, it's, it bothers me as well. I, this is when I say that religion is often a combination of, you know, treasury of wisdom and power. There is something about a commanding male deity to control a population that I don't think should be ignored when we consider all of this stuff. And it doesn't mean like, if we kind of look deeper into some of the prayers, there are some amazing teachings and sayings in there, but as a, as a mode of expressing ourselves in the world, it it's not something that particularly suits me. And again, I think a lot of people, especially either because of their belief systems or that let's say someone's agnostic or atheist, it just doesn't work. And I totally get that. Or people who have a deep relationship to spirit or to God. And just, these are, this is not the God I am connecting to, or that's no. not an articulation I would use. I, I, I relate to that, which is I've designed a, a new way of having these kind of, it's not really a prayer service, but it's modeled after it. And it involves, it kind of taps into the deeper structures of the morning service, the traditional morning service, you could say in brief, 
You could divide it into physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And so, I mean, these are Kabbalistic teachings. I'm just summarizing very quickly. But so when I lead, we start with movement, like a Qigong or Tai Chi. We go into then contemplative singing, sometimes without words, sometimes simple chanting. But the whole point is to open up the heart space. After that, it's a poetic reading, something that's going to make people go, wow, or move them in some way. And then we we move into silence for the last part. And in the same way that in traditional Jewish services, there's often a Torah reading where people are, are kind of, you know, someone opens up the scroll and reads from it in front of the congregation. What I do with groups is we actually feel into the space together. We get often holding our hands up and just sensing what's there and then allowing insights or messages to come through. And then people can share them. And I've done this with people who've never done that kind of thing before or with experienced practitioners as well. And it's amazing what's coming through. And to me, it's this kind of sweet spot between something that taps into ancestry or tradition, but it's also very relevant and experiential and cathartic and helpful. I've noticed that the um, extreme Orthodox, the men, they chant all the time, all the time. Everything's as they're walking, they're chanting, and it's just, it's, and they, what is the reason for that? Why are they doing that? Well, the service is on their own. If someone were to say every word in a prayer service for the whole day, really, it takes about two or three hours. And then there's the, as soon as you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed, but people walking on the way, I would imagine they're probably either singing uh, uh, one of these sacred songs or they're reciting uh, psalms from from the Bible. And there, so there's a, a, a law, so to speak, in one of the codes of law that says you should place God before you at all times. And that's interpreted by this particular legal code from the 1500s to mean, imagine that the divine name is literally in front of your eyes at every moment. And I don't know if that's exactly related to the chanting but if someone has this orientation towards life they're attempting to keep a divine connection or that in mind at every moment and it, it in a sense could be really the values behind it might actually be fairly aligned with some of the things we've been talking about today but it for it it in the context especially from a, a i mean i'm an outsider there from my outsider point of view it, i'm not always sure what what to make of that or how to understand it <laughs> Right. And I, I like you. to think that there's that there's a bunch of seeking happening and, and striving and opening. But sometimes there is also a sense in those worlds of being compelled by a law or by a rewarding and punishing deity. And that's around as well. You'll find that all over in, in every tradition. There's this sort of the fear of, of reward or fear of punishment and the and the promise of reward. It's a, but people view that differently and depending on who, who they are. Yeah, fear is something that. Um... Unfortunately, religions tend to use to control people and keep them hostage. How would you relate that to a narcissism, narcissistic abuse pattern? I'm I'm serious. That sounds like something that you might have some. I don't know. Is, does that resonate? What I said, like are those yes. two things similar? Yeah. Yes, I mean, narcissists control through fear and conditioning, and repetitiveness and um, a feeling like uh, of safety. Um, it's all false, of course, but they, and they capture emotional hostages. And then once you're in that, uh, once you've been captured, you are indoctrinated. So it's, it's very much like a cult. Yeah. Actually, it is the same thing as a cult. 
you get indoctrinated into their belief system. And mm -hmm. some of them even use spiritual abuse, which is even worse because then they attack people with a place where they, their faith is like the only thing they have left. So, um, but yeah, sounds kind of like narcissism, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are elements of it. The, um, and, and what someone in an ultra-Orthodox world, I mean, that actually in and of itself has diversity too. You know what I mean? There's some places I've been in that are actually fairly open-minded, like people who are in that camp but are going to university because they want to engage with the broader public. And you'll also find things that feel closer to that control mechanism mm -hmm. as well. So right. in every unfortunately- field, In every profession. Every profession, every spiritual orientation, sadly, like we can find greater or lesser degrees of empowerment. The The book Embodied Kabbalah really is about empowerment at the end of the day. I'm not the kind of teacher who tells people what to believe or how to behave or or that kind of thing. I, I really, the goal is to help people become who they are. And and the teacher in that case is a servant to, to someone's, you know, best self. Right. I like that. I like that. That's, that's a great philosophy. And I do the show... I bring in many, many different perspectives and ideas and things like that because everybody's going to grab onto what they're going to grab onto, you know? So I like to just give them all kinds of perspectives and let them figure out what resonates with them. Not, you know, not, I mean, I've done over 500 shows. So, and, you know, and every time I do a show, especially with somebody like you or um, somebody who's very spiritual, I come off and I'm like, oh, I'm going to follow that way. And then, <laughs> then there's another show and another person and another person. And I've heard so many perspectives. Um, and that's one of the things I really love about doing this is mm. just, it expands my mind like crazy. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, I'm reading uh, on page 38 where it says another reason why the infinite is called the infinite is because inquiry into it has no end. That sounds a little circular. Can you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so in this again, that's so that's a sort of let's say capital K Kabbalah. That's like the more sort of in the formal sense that the text from that era and the teacher is trying to describe the indescribable. So if it sounds a little circular, Randy, it's because in Kabbalah, in that system, as you go higher up, or you could say deeper into the layers of reality, they get less conceptual. They're less mind-oriented. And they're things that really, there's experiences that people can describe that where they don't exist in that experience anymore. So how can it really be an experience if there's, it's those kinds of things. It's a paradoxical mm, world. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, that kind of, we can get tied up in knots talking like that on some level, but what the reason, or one of the reasons I really like that teaching is because the infinite is the goal in a sense in Kabbalah. Like we're supposed to be striving to access what's called Ein Sof, which means without end or no end. That's what the word infinite means, okay. without ending. It's not finite. And I just think it's such a wonderful, I could say idea or a wonderful orientation spiritually to say, this exploration never ends. So don't think that you found it. 
right? And there, the time to find it, so to speak, in that sense is on Shabbat, where everything with that mindset of every, it's all good, it's all one, we've, we're here, we're not working, we've rested. Like we get to, in a sense, experience enlightenment every time we enter Shabbat consciousness. But this teaching about the work or the exploration and the seeking, we have to know that there is no end. No and, end. And, and that, so I, sometimes I tell that to people and they say, well, that's really depressing or something like that. I've heard, yeah, but I think it's incredibly inspiring. And that means to me too, that there's actually spiritual systems and philosophies that are actually coming into the world right now and always will be because we haven't actually figured it all out. There's, there's no end to this exploration. There's this sort of, there's this mountain range or this, this adventure we're on and it's good to take a rest and to uh, to enjoy the view <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, but <sighs> at the same time, the infinite inquiry, the inquiry into the true nature of reality, it's, it's, you could also say it's forever giving gifts to us the deeper we, we go. That's what it feels like. Yeah. That's what it feels like. So well, our time is up, but we're, we're talking about um, Matthew's book, embodied Kabbalah, and you can see it behind him. Um, and so tell us about how you can be contacted, what you, what kind of work you actually do outside of this, writing this book and, um, you know, where the book is available. Absolutely. So my website, matthewponak.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-P-O-N-A-K.com is where you can contact me. If anyone wants to learn more besides writing this book, I offer one-on-one -on -one sessions. That is a combination of teaching mystical concepts and doing somatic work. Really, it's about whoever is in front of me and what their needs are. But those are two of the areas that tend to come up the most is a combination of you said somatic genius. works. Yeah, somatic right. work, Body. embodiment. Right. And uh, yeah, I'm trained in focusing by uh, a school of thought created by Eugene Gendlin. And I'm also doing a lot of teaching these days. And that looks like going to different communities, whether online or in person. I'm available to do speaking. I'm available to do retreat weekends, Shabbatons. I'm available to essentially be a, a guest in a different community or institution, again, via Zoom or in person. And I'm, I also teach courses. So for example, uh, in April of this year, 2023, I'm going to be teaching an eight class online series in on, on embodied Kabbalah. Hmm. And I'm hoping to do more of those kinds of uh, courses in June as well as the summer. Okay. So all of that can be available through matthewponak.com and my mailing list and also on Facebook, Rabbi Matthew Ponak. Okay, that, that's great. This was so interesting. You know, I, I had no idea. You know, I, I tend to go deep into things, um, but I had really had no idea where we, where we were going with this. But um, it's all very relatable to me. Great. Wonderful. That's very that's much. the whole goal, that this esoteric system can be relatable and practical and helpful because it really is. And it's a matter of just accessing it in the right way and having it translated um, so that it can meet the needs of what people are, are yearning for right now. Good. Right. Thank you for sharing this with us. Um, Absolutely. It's been a great discussion. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I really Thank you so much for having me on, Randy. Okay. Take care.